0: Well, having come from uh, near cottage country, I just want to let you know that there's a frost advisory for this weekend. And uh, so uh, aren't you glad you're here? Uh, um, wow. And I'm glad you're here, too. And worship team. Wow. You're great this morning. What a great size group on May 2-4 weekend. Yeah. Uh, so it was um yeah it 's been been amazing uh, to be here and, and uh, yeah we 're making our way through uh, jesus hillside talker known as the uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we started off by talking about the kind of life that that God blesses and and, and kind of laid that out for us so that we would understand what it is in in life that God wants to bless and how that goes about, how we go about experiencing the reality of his blessings. Last week, Lynette unpacked uh, who we are. We're uh, salt and light. And uh, now we're going to continue on today and look a little bit more about what that looks like, how we live out the reality of being who we are. Uh, salt and light as we uh, look at uh, continuing on in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles with you or you have it on your devices, please uh, take them out. We're going to be looking at just a a few, highlighting a few verses from uh, Matthew 21 through 5, rather, uh, 21 through uh, 48. Um, And kids, if you've got your little uh, uh, kids thing... uh, they did a great job of putting it together. I was asked, so uh, what are you talking on this week that we could put in a kid's thing? And I said, well, I'm talking about lust. I'm talking about uh, divorce. I'm talking about adultery. Uh, all these kid-friendly kinds of things. And then I looked on and I said, Well, wow, there's also truth-telling and loving your enemies and, and all that. They've done a super job at putting the uh, the kid's uh, pack it together for our children today, and so um, um, adults. I don't want to see you using that, uh, uh, but if you get bored, go ahead. All right, let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we're grateful for this time to gather around your word. We've been brought into your presence through the music and the singing, which is which is great and 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 helps us understand the the vibe of who you are the fact that you are worthy of our singing and a song, and that's been so much a part of of your people over the years. Now, as Jesus gathered his disciples around him to teach them, we gather around your word now. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you will help us understand these words that you have spoken so long ago but are so relevant to us today. And Spirit of God, guide us into truth, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we continue examining Jesus' hillside talk, commonly referred to, as I have said, as the Sermon on the Mount, it is important to understand that Jesus is not teaching just another set of religious rules or practices to replace the old ways. Jesus is really speaking to the matter of going beyond religious externals and responding to God. What Jesus wants his followers to catch is the inside-out change his teaching is to make upon our lives. This fact is easily lost on us if we are not careful, and it's quite easy for us to adopt the attitude of the pastor pictured in this cartoon. This is my fourth sermon on the transforming power of the gospel, Why Do You Look Like the Same Old Bunch?, Well, Jesus' objective in teaching is to help people be good, not just look like it. Unlike some preachers, and particularly the religious leaders of his day, Jesus actually knows how to empower people to be good. And he brings his teaching to bear on the human condition, not in a self-improvement approach, but from a transformational perspective. Jesus knows that people deeply long to do good. But they cannot find their way. And so they turn to religious practices and rituals to guide them in their search, backed up by all kinds of justification for when they don't measure up to acknowledged moral obligations. However, when it comes to experiencing the goodness that characterize those who belong to God's kingdom, no amount of acts or projects will bring fulfillment. And so Jesus concluded the section of his talk that we're going to look at today with the criteria for God's kingdom dwellers. They are to be perfect as their heavenly Father is perfect. It is this standard of life in God's kingdom that led Jesus to instruct his followers on how not to be religious. No amount of religious practice can generate the level of goodness and perfection that Jesus is talking to is calling his disciples to. However, as C.S. Lewis has written about this statement of Jesus, the command to be perfect is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. And to validate his claim, Jesus points to the recognized religious authorities of the day. If anyone would be able to attain God's kingdom goodness through religious practices, surely it would be these leaders. But in a startling statement, Jesus said, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. For the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, religion was nothing more than a public display to make themselves look good. They put on a show of pomp and ceremony to impress the people. It was a public relations act to promote their duty-bound belief system. Life change had little importance in their religious viewpoint. It was all about externals. Well, it's important for us to understand the inward transformation required to be a true follower of Jesus. Religion in itself takes us nowhere in the pursuit of God's plan for our lives. What what religion does is focus on what we do, when what makes the difference in obtaining righteousness is what God has done. He has made it possible for us to be forgiven of our sin and released from all guilt and punishment. That's why Jesus came. That's why He died on the cross. That's why He was risen from the dead. He didn't come to call the religious, but sinners to repentance. Interestingly, interestingly, Jesus was never called the friend of the religious. He was called the friend of sinners, a title that he gladly accepted. Sometimes it's interesting when I'm in conversation with people and it gets around to vocational uh, interests and all, and people ask me uh, what I do. And I've tried over the years to come up with a, a variety of ways of trying to explain it, like I'm in human uh, performance issues and all the, those kinds of things. But I usually come out and just say, well, I'm a pastor. And when people find out that I'm a pastor, they often respond by saying, I'm not a very religious person. And when I tell them that I'm not very religious either, they look rather shocked. Being a Christ follower is not about being religious. It is about finding my true self in relationship with Jesus, experiencing life-transforming fellowship with Him that changes me from the inside out. I'm not much into religion because Jesus was not much into it when Jesus taught his disciples he did so from the perspective of the heart attitude true followers of Jesus have a heart for being good now as we look more closely at what Jesus said it won't take us long to discover that he moves right to the heart of the matter of what is crucial for transformational living the internal attitudes of the heart make for external actions Both have importance in Jesus' teaching, but the life change of which he speaks comes from the heart, not the other way around. Jesus leads us away from purely religious practice and emphasizes how to become a follower of his without falling into the trap of trying to be religious. When the rightness of a transformed heart is fully engaged, there is a sequence of contrasts between the older teaching about what a good person does and what Jesus envisions his followers doing. Jesus presents a picture of a person with a heart captured by God's kingdom values. The heart will live with true, that heart will live with true tenderness toward everyone it encounters, regardless of how it is treated. From this section of the Sermon on the Mount we will consider today, we will discover that those who have moved beyond obedience to God as a religious practice have a heart for healthy relationships, pure sex, the sanctity of marriage, truth-telling, returning kindness for injury, and loving their enemies. Now, I need to say that time won't permit me to go into great detail about what Jesus teaches here. I could preach a sermon on every statement that I've just made, but it's my intention to just point out some of the main points of each theme that Jesus touches on, so we can see if our hearts line up with what he says. So let's look at what Jesus says has to say about each of these, beginning with having a heart for healthy relationships. This is what he wrote, or this is what he said. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. When we trace murder back to its roots, most often it is the result of some pent-up anger. Under the old law, judgment occurred when a murder actually was committed. Jesus' point here is for his followers not to place themselves in a position for judgment by allowing anger to fester within them. It is the elimination of anger and its close companion contempt that Jesus presents as the first and fundamental step toward the rightness of the kingdom heart when we refuse to deal in a timely manner with our anger, when we, call out, when we call out the person we can't stand as an idiot, when long-standing hurts are allowed to remain deep inside of us without being resolved, when we curse the person who cuts us off in traffic, when we make racial slurs and ridicule the marginalized, we show that we are not moving about in harmony with God's kingdom values. We have lost heart for reflecting kingdom rightness and stand in need of Jesus transforming love. The moral fact is this, words kill. So Jesus calls us to live above the level of resentment. While well, from violence in human relationships, Jesus moves to the most, next most, most lethal blow to a heart positioned for kingdom rightness, sex. Those who live in the movement of God's kingdom will have a heart for pure sex. And so Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now let me say that in a sex-crazed society, it is important to understand what Jesus is actually saying here. It is pretty difficult to avoid sexually stimulating sights as we go about our daily lives. The provocatively dressed woman at the office, the really cute hunk who quarterbacks the college football team, the tantalizing pop-ups on the computer screen, and numerous other visually attractive stimuli. Jesus is not stating that being caused to think sexual thoughts is the same as committing adultery in the heart. The wording of Jesus' statement refers to looking at a person with the purpose of desiring him or her. That is, we desire the desire. And so you can't take your eyes off the short skirt at the office and gaze lustfully or fantasize about being in the arms of the quarterback or click on the links of the pop-ups and become sexually aroused from pornographic images. That's crossing the line for Kingdom Hearts. And so Jesus' point is this, the goodness of the kingdom heart comes from the belief that impurity separates us from God and ruins our relationships with others, especially those whose love we are to cherish the most. Purity is the response to a higher call, the calling of intimacy with God. By harboring lust, we lose sight of God and resist the greatness of His love for us. This love, this love of God, is to so fill us and invade our being that it crowds out the many forms of evil we are confronted with each and every day. And so from this transformed stimulus for goodness come deeds of respect and purity that characterize sexuality as it is meant to be by God. Now, in the context of this call to purity, Jesus makes a statement that seems to promote a radical form of self-mutilation. He says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, right eye causes you to stumble, rather, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Now, Jesus is not proposing the literally blinding of an eye or chopping off of a hand, and his readers would understand this. He is intentionally using an exaggerated analogy to promote the seriousness of single-hearted devotion to God and to being sexually pure. We are to be single-minded and single-handed in our sexual practices, being one with our spouses in heart and mind and body. While from violence and obsessive sexual desires, Jesus moves on to speak of divorce. Dallas Willard makes this observation about Jesus' transition into the topic of divorce. It is not an accident that Jesus deals with divorce after dealing with anger, contempt, and obsessive desire. Just ask yourself how many divorces would occur, and in how many cases the question of divorce would never even have arisen if anger, contempt, and obsessive fantasized desire were were eliminated. The answer is, of course, hardly Any at all. Here is Jesus' statement. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, later on in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus expands on this instruction. But here he gives a brief synopsis of the kind of heart attitude that his followers are to have toward marriage that takes them beyond and above religious duty. They are to have a heart for the sanctity of marriage. Now, it's helpful to understand the context of Jesus' statement. He is reminding his followers that the practice taught and insisted upon by the religious authorities stated that if a husband intended to divorce his wife, he simply needed to provide her with a certificate releasing her from the marriage. Now, this was a reference to a practice that Moses introduced into the nation of Israel. But this practice was a concession given to the people because, as the scriptures say, of their hard-heartedness against God's original plan. And so as a result, the sanctity of marriage was destroyed because hearts were hardened instead of being transformed. The exception clause that Jesus references for allowing divorce has often been linked only to adultery. So when adultery occurs, divorce is permissible, permissible allowing the non-offending spouse to marry, remarry. However, adultery has been specified by a different word used in the verses that we just looked at in verses 27 and 28. The word that Jesus uses here and is translated as marital unfaithfulness must be something less than sexual infidelity, but following the Mosaic tradition, more than something trivial or simply preferential. Marital unfaithfulness includes any sinful, destructive behavior that intentionally divides the marriage bond. Jesus places the highest value on the sanctity of marriage, but allows divorce to protect the covenant-keeping spouse and to keep the institution of marriage from becoming a mockery. Jesus' admission was that hard hearts made divorce permissible to avoid greater harm. However, his point is to teach that kingdom hearts are not to become hard. And when a married couple is intent on living from hearts renewed by God's love, they will find ways to bear with each other, to speak truth and love, to change often through times of great pain and distress until the tender intimacy of mutual covenant framed love finds a way for the two lives to remain one beautifully and abundantly. While for relationships to flourish, whether in marriage or in community, Jesus insists that his followers have a heart for truth-telling. Just say a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't, Jesus said. Your word is enough. To strengthen your promise with a vow shows that something is wrong. Now, Jesus goes right to the heart of why people swear oaths. They do so to impress others with their sincerity and their reliability. But such attempts to gain acceptance of what they are saying and what they want is unnecessary for the person with a kingdom heart. Here Jesus is insisting that those who are true disciples will not need to make oaths as an additional confirmation that they will honor their word. This again is a test of the heart. What we say with our lips comes from who we are on the inside. And so a person with an honest heart will speak honest words. A person with a dependable heart can be depended upon to follow through with what they say. If we feel that we need to add statements like, I swear or cross my heart or hope to die, or even offer to shake hands to seal a deal in order to demonstrate our commitment, does it mean that when we don't add these expressions, we don't mean it as much? Quite frankly, I have shaken the hands of too many people who have not followed through on their commitments to me. And so a simple yes or no should be all that is necessary to indicate your intentions and is to be as binding as any oath that we might make. Jesus looks his followers in the eye and tells them to be true to their word if they are to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. Well, truth-telling and gracious words are most difficult to give to those who hurt us, aren't they? You are undoubtedly familiar with the saying, don't get mad, get even. But in reality, we want both to get mad and also to get even. And in contrast, Jesus says that those who abide by God's kingdom values will have a heart for kindness when injured. And so he makes this statement. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus points out that those who are legalistic in their approach to religion are often heartless when it comes to responding to people who hurt them. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth is taken as a way to legitimize their right to seek revenge. What was intended to guide a nation in establishing laws of justice has now been used as an excuse for personal retaliation. To counteract the unending cycle of revenge, Jesus instructs his followers to turn the other cheek when offended. Again, this is not so much an emphasis on the actual physical act as what takes place on the inside. Jesus is not asking his followers to be, become a bunch of wimps or to refuse to take a stand against evil and injustice. He is laying out the position that someone has to stop the madness of needing to get even if goodness and peace are to prevail in the world. And he's saying to his followers, you be that person. And this is where it kind of hits home to me. Because I find myself wanting to strike back when I am offended or see offenses taking place. I want to go after the driver who blatantly runs a red light in front of me. I want to chase down the person on the jet ski who blasts around the lake with little regard to other boaters. And although it may not be wrong for me to want to see law and order prevail, it is wrong when I am intent on showing that I am right to satisfy my own ego when I see myself to be some sort of righteous cop that God has deputized to blow the whistle on any who oppose his truth. Jesus is telling us that to be followers of his, we are not to set ourselves up for advancing personal retaliation. Rather, when wronged, We are to look for ways to respond to others that will allow the reality of God's love in our lives to influence them toward God's kingdom values. And in this way, Jesus leads the way. For he did not retaliate when he was insulted. When he suffered, he did not threaten to get even. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. The final point to be made from the section of Jesus Hillside Talk that we are considering today, is that those who have moved beyond obedience to God as a religion have a heart for loving their enemies. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The way of the old life is to resist and even eliminate those who oppose us, our enemies who plot our demise. The new way of Jesus is to love our enemies and to show that love through the highest acts of love and prayer. When we do this, we live out God's position towards us when He showed His love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. And so by having a heart to love our enemies, we show that we are sons and daughters of God. And in that position, Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And now we have come full circle from where I began my talk on becoming people who live as God intends. Not because of a set of religious rules and practices, but from hearts that are transformed by Jesus, It is interesting that when Luke records Jesus' statement on being perfect as God is perfect, he has Jesus saying, Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Biblical scholars say that the two words, perfect and merciful, can be reduced to the same reality. And so to follow Jesus in his teaching of kindness and compassion captures the heart of what it means to be perfect, as the Heavenly Father is perfect, and to practice how not to be religious. Well, in response to this statement, I can almost hear someone say, well, nobody's perfect. And perhaps we accept this as a reality because we have met so few people who genuinely demonstrate the level of right living that Jesus is teaching. Or when we do encounter such a person, we don't take notice of the beauty of Jesus in them, but we assess their spiritual strength by the way they pray or quote scripture or practice holy habits. And then we look at ourselves and we see all of our own failures. But what if we didn't make this description about us? What if instead of focusing on our inadequacies, we let our hearts and minds linger on the beauty of Jesus and the kingdom of God that he came to establish? What if instead of always looking at the outer realities, we long to be transformed by God birthing his kingdom presence in us? Your kingdom come, your will be done. And so here are some words that God has given to us to help us in living out his kingdom life and his kingdom values. And as we wrap this morning, I would like to invite you to stand with me. And we're going to read these verses from the scripture, all taken from the New Living Translation. And they're going to be kind of our words of sending today. So stand with me and let us read together. See how much our Father loves us, for He calls us His children, and that is what we are. Christ is all that matters, and He lives in all of us. In Christ lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God is love, and all who live in love live in God. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. And may the beauty of Jesus capture your hearts and your minds. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you would like to have someone pray with you and uh, talk with you this morning, we have those people who are here to do that. Uh, We just want to be available to you to help you in your spiritual journeys in whatever way we can. God bless. We're dismissed.